All right. Hey, that's just real life right there, right? The only problem with showing you that is I thought you could watch that all day and forget the sermon. I know that uh, because as I watched those, I thought, you know, every one of those situations started with a really good idea. And then it went south from there. You know, the reality is every good idea has the potential to end up as a fail. And so as we transition from a baby dedication to what we have started last week in terms of freedom in Galatians 5, the connection that I want you to make as we showed that video is that even the best of gifts can end up failing, or we can ruin, if you will, even the best of things that we have been granted by the Lord, including our freedom. Life, inevitably, in terms of just circumstances, is filled with those moments of failure and, oh, wow, that hurt. But when it happens spiritually, it's neither comical And it's really not just damaging to the individual, it's damaging to all. And so, very simply, this morning, we're going to look again at the freedom that we have in Christ, and then specifically, what it looks like when freedom fails. The warning that Paul gives in Galatians 5 in this chapter is this, "'For you were called to freedom, brethren,' Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom, the gift of God to us in Christ, will become a fail when we take that freedom and we pervert it into an opportunity for our flesh. So let's review first from last week, if you weren't here, what is this freedom that we've been called to? Well, the chapter started... It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. In other words, we have been set free, but, watch, not all who have been set free live free. It's possible to be set free, but not live free. And when the scripture speaks about freedom in Christ, we're talking about being set free to live free from three particular realities. First, the reality of the condemning power of sin. And so, we visualized that last week with this yoke because chapter 5 talks about not returning again to this yoke of the condemning power of sin. Of the law, and don't return again to it because we have been, Paul says, set free. It's been removed. So that's part of our freedom. The second aspect to our freedom is the enslaving power of sin. And we visualized that last week with the reality of this heavy chain. Did any of you come this week and uh, try this on? Yeah, I didn't think so. The only reason I would encourage you to do that is because you literally physically feel 
a small, and I mean very small, sense of the spiritual reality of what the law and what sin is to us apart from Christ. It is a restricting, heavy weight that we cannot bear. Apart from Christ, we're under the condemning power of the law, the enslaving power of sin, and the stinging power of death represented by the, the hood that I wore last week. But I was identified as a terrorist, so I will not put the hood on this week. So the stinging power of death. Now, I simply put this again visually in front of you this morning because, and again, I wish you could feel it, because what I'm about to experience physically is what we experience in Christ. Our slavery to sin and the condemning power of the law is set free. And there's just, wow, that just feels good to have it off. And it's more than a feeling. It's a reality. When this is removed, you're free. Have you ever gone snow skiing and worn for a day those clonking big heavy boots? And then at the end of the day, it's like, oh, you take them off and you're like, whew, wiggle my toes. And you feel like you could run faster and jump higher. Why? Because the weight, the confining reality of those boots, once you're free from, you don't experience it until you didn't have it. And all I'm simply reminding you this morning is you have in Christ a freedom that you didn't always have. You were once under the law. You were once a slave to sin. You once experienced the full sting of death, and Christ has set you free. Galatians 5 is a plea. Don't let anyone put it back on you again. And, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, last week in quick summary, if you put this back on again, in other words, that you're going to trust in your behavior, becoming a better person, a more moral person, to be the means by which you earn your salvation, if that's your plan, the keeping of the law is your plan for being saved, then the scripture says this, if that's your plan, you have to be perfect. Otherwise, you won't be saved. And if that's your plan, Christ is of no use to you. Because if you have a plan, you don't need Christ's work on the cross on your behalf. And if that's your plan, grace is no longer grace because grace means you're being given something you don't deserve and this is an attempt to earn something that you can't earn, but you're gonna try. So he says, don't let anyone put it back on you again. And then verses seven through 12, he has incredibly harsh and condemning words for those who try to do that to others, who specifically were attempting to do it to the folks that he is writing here in Galatians. And then he comes back to this central theme, verse 13, that we're going to look at today. He comes back to the theme that he started with in verse 1. For you were called to freedom, brethren, free from the 
condemning power of the law, the enslaving power of sin, the stinging power of death. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The perversion of our freedom. And specifically, the perversion of our freedom as a tool for the flesh. So, let me make sure you understand specifically what Paul is saying in Galatians 5. He is confronting two extremes. You've been set free to do what? Live free. Therefore, don't let anybody pervert your freedom and put you under the yoke of the law again. But you've been set free to live free. Don't you allow your freedom to become a tool for the flesh. You see the two extremes? Freedom abused is either perverted and becomes a tool for the flesh or freedom is denied and we return again to attempting to gain our freedom through keeping the law. Those are the two extremes that Galatians 5 is confronting both. This morning, we're looking at the perversion as a tool for the flesh. And scripture identifies how we do this in two specific ways. First, there is a truth and then a perversion of it. The truth is, in Christ I am forgiven. Yes or no? Yes. In Christ my sins have been paid for in full, nailed to the cross. I am declared innocent, righteous, redeemed, forgiven. Therefore, here's the perversion, I can do whatever I want. If I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want. Now, do people actually have a proverb for that today? Yes, they do. Do you know what it is? It's, if it, <laughs> it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. That's what we say. Or can you do that? Nah, I don't know. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. All that is simply saying is, God, I know you've declared it to wrong, or I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but what's the truth? I'm forgiven, so I can do whatever I want. Because what are you going to do? Forgive me. It's our monopoly version of get out of jail free. You played Monopoly. What's the problem, though, with the get out of jail free card in Monopoly? You only get to play it once, and then you got to turn it in so you can hopefully get another one. Imagine if you had a get out of jail free card that you didn't have to turn in. You could play it any time as long as you wanted. It never expired. That's spiritual freedom perverted. Doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how I live, God's going to forgive me. Now, I didn't make that up. That's directly confronted in Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans 5 says this. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. You understand what that means? It means you weren't speeding until there was a speed limit sign. You weren't breaking the law until they put that stop sign up there. 
And now yielding was not good enough. You had to stop. The more the law was revealed, the more transgression came about. But where sin increased, so the more I understand about the character of God and what he commands, the more it's revealed I fall short. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. Because no matter how high, if you will, the pile of sin in my life, the pile of grace will always be higher. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the law brought forth sin. The sin produces death. But grace says, I will give you eternal life instead of death. So what's the conclusion? If all of that is true, if I sin more, then grace would be even more obvious. The, the bigger pile of sin, the bigger pile of grace. I should go to jail more often so I could play my get-out-of-jail-free card more often to the glory of God's grace. Again, I didn't make that up, the scripture says. So what do we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? If really grace is what it is and sin is great, then why not sin more so that grace, why be good? That, <laughs> that shows little bits of grace. Let's get a really rocking testimony so that people go, wow, there's a lot of grace. But what's the answer in the text? He says, first, may it never be, and then he gives a why. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, there's two ways to read that. For years, I read it this way. How are you going to, how are you going to, how you who died to sin, how are you going to still live in it? In other words, this emotional, indignant, Christ died for you to save you from sin. Why are you going to live in it? As if that's so disloyal. Or there is actually not an emotional, indignant response, but a factual reality response. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? For years I thought, no, you can't. You've you got to obey Jesus. He died for you. You should live for him. May it never be. But that's not the motive here. The confrontation that Paul offers is not an indignant emotional response. It's a spiritual reality. May it never be. Don't you know what happened to you when you were born again? How can you who died to the slavery to sin, how are you going to still live in it? See, it's an inconsistency with the reality. I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife, 
told me this week she doesn't like it when I do this, but when she asks me an obvious question, at times I'll say, well, does a one-legged duck swim in circles? And she goes, you'll always say that. You think that's so funny. I said, well, I just think it's clever. Did you win in tennis? Does a one-legged duck swim in circles? That's what I get to say. So, and so do one-legged ducks swim in circles? You understand the analogy? They swim in a circle. All Paul is saying here is, hey, two-legged ducks, why are you still swimming in circles? Should we keep swimming in circles? May it never be. You got two legs. Hmm. Hey, straight line. Little, you know, we can use the rudder a little bit and do this. Power, two engines, go one. But I don't, I'm not stuck anymore in circles. So you understand, that is not an emotional, indignant response. The question, because I'm forgiven, can I live however I want? May it never be, not because that's so disloyal, you should be more committed. That's not congruent with your spiritual reality. You used to be a one-legged duck enslaved to sin. You got two legs. Live like it. You follow? So, Christ has set us free. Are we forgiven? Yes. Should we do whatever we want so that forgiveness gets even greater play? No, not because that's an abuse, (laughs) because that's not consistent with the spiritual reality of those who have been born again. That's why we declared in song this morning, I am not the same anymore. That's just not a cool sounding song. That is a profoundly powerful truth that that's why we sing that song to declare again to ourselves, to one another, I'm not the same anymore. I am a new creation. One-legged to two-legged. Therefore, I don't have to live the way I always used to live. May it never be. Or don't you know? Because that's what the next verse says in Romans 6. Or don't you know? So, There is a perversion of our freedom that says, I can just keep on sinning because of God's grace. And it's a perversion because it does not account for the spiritual reality of the transformation of the person who's been born again, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Second perversion. Oh, every perversion is rooted in a truth. If the person who is in Christ, do they belong to God? Yes or no? 100%. I am not my own anymore. I belong to Christ. Here's the perversion. So I don't care what you think. And that sounds so spiritual. I only care what Jesus thinks. Sometimes we'll say, I live for an audience of one, which is very spiritual sounding, and I get the point. It's just not accurate to what it means to belong to God. 
Paul says this, and I'll tell you then, we'll look at the history, the specific behind the statement. He says this, take care that this liberty, synonym for what? Freedom. Take care that this freedom, liberty of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, he's not talking about the physically weak. He is speaking specifically about a person who has a weak conscience. So let me explain the detail, but the specific, uh, the principle, don't miss. That it's possible that we can use our liberty in such a way that is harmful to others. Not just harmful to me, hey, God's going to forgive me, but harmful to others. Here's the specific situation going on in Corinth. Chapter 8 begins like this. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So here's the issue in Corinth. They had for years and years and years and years in Corinth done one and only thing, worship idols. Then a man named the Apostle Paul shows up and begins to declare the truth of the scriptures and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to be saved. And some in the city hear it and are born again. So you have this little church in Corinth. And now they're fighting about what is really right and wrong specifically about food that had been offered to idols. Since that's not our world, let me just simply explain. An idol represents in a person's mind a God that has some sort of power in life or in harvest and whether your children will survive. And so you make offerings to the idols so that they, you will please them and they will do good and not bad. You take food and you feed the idol. It's been sacrificed to idols. It's part of the idol worship. Christians now were saying, rightly so, we don't worship idols. And some were saying, we therefore can't eat food sacrificed to idols because that would include, that would be part of idol worship. Others said, no, it's not. Here's what's interesting. He starts saying, now concerning this debate, we know that we all have knowledge. Everybody knows what they think is right. But we don't all have the same knowledge is what the text reveals. In verse 4, he says this, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So if there is only one God, there is no such thing as an idol, then any food sacrificed to an idol, what is true about that food? It's still the food, the same food it always was. Is it contaminated? No. Why not? Because there isn't anything such as an idol that it could be contaminated. It's just food. We're free to eat. 
That's knowledge. Is that true? True or false? Verse 4 speaks true. Yes? Verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. Why not? But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, in other words, their whole experience has been the worship of idols, the sacrificing to idols, and the recognition that now that meat, that food, is quote-unquote devoted to the idol, and to eat it would be part of idol worship. That's their custom until now. Eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So they've been born again. They're trusting in Jesus. Now they can't do what they used to do because that would represent idol worship, and they don't believe in idols anymore. So some people, watch, were saying, hey, (laughs) there's no such thing as an idol. Eat it. It's fine. Other people were saying, no, 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 (laughs) no. You can't eat that. Because if you do, you're going to be worshiping an idol. Play this out in real life. If someone sees you who have knowledge, in other words, there's no God but one, there's no such thing as an idol, to eat is fine. If someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his, this person over here, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, he thinks it's wrong, but he does it because you're doing it. What's the result? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is, what's the word? Ruined. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So it's possible for a person who has been set free to say, I am free, there is only one God, there is no such thing as an idol, and I can eat and I don't care what you think. If that's your mentality, Paul says, what are you doing? Yeah, you're ruining, you're sinning, not only against your brother, but you're sinning against Christ. What's the sin? It's the perversion of your freedom. Thinking, because I belong to God, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. So Paul says, my conclusion's this. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. I'll gladly give it up so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. In other words, they are more important to me than my knowledge, even when it is correct. Not the freedom to do whatever I want or the freedom to completely dismiss what you think. That's freedom perverted. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. We've talked about how we do that. Here's what our freedom should set us free to do. But through love, serve one another. What was Paul's conclusion? Uh, I am free. 
I don't believe there's anything wrong with that food, but I'm going to push it aside for the simple reason that I do not want to elevate my freedom over my brother. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge lifts me up over them, but love lifts them up over me. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement. You shall love, what's the one word? Love your neighbor as yourself. So we are set free to live free and to live in the freedom as Christ intends us to live is to do what? What's the one word? Love freely. Yes. To live free is to love freely, to love as we have been loved. Let's mark this very, very clear in our thinking. Remember the perversion? Set free to live free. Not to go back again and live under the law, not to pervert it and to abuse it by saying, I can do whatever I want because I'm going to be forgiven, or I belong to God, therefore I don't care what you think. To live free is to love freely as we've been loved. And that is the freedom for two reasons, because love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. I think it's often confusing to us, where does the law fit? And what does it mean that the law has been fulfilled and that I've been freed from it? So let's be clear. This yoke of slavery that we've been set free from was the attempt to say, I could obtain righteousness by my own doing. And Paul says, you can't. Because if that's your goal again, what? Then you have to be perfect. And nobody's perfect. This is going to fail you. Christ has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He has fulfilled the law so that you would be set free. Now watch. From Obtaining righteousness through the law. Set free from the law means you are set free from your attempt to obtain righteousness through keeping it. But we, having obtained now the righteousness of Christ, we get to fulfill the law, not to obtain righteousness, we get to fulfill it. How? One word, by loving others. Why is it a perversion to say, I belong to God, I don't care what other people think for this reason? The scripture says, to love God is to love one another. You can love other people and not love God, but you cannot love God and not love other people. It is a perversion of your freedom to think, I belong to God. It doesn't matter what anybody else Thanks. Other people are part of the equation of as I live because love fulfills the law and love cares about the good of others. So, in Paul's very specific situation, 
He says, I will set aside my freedom that I have in knowledge in order to be truly exercise my freedom to love you. Exercise my freedom from food, with food, and freely love you by not exercising it. There is a dramatic and very important difference in our understanding between how we obtain righteousness and then how we live out that righteousness. And sometimes we confuse the two. Let me show you by what I introduced to you last week. Last week, or if you weren't here, we briefly looked at Acts 15.1. Acts 15.1 is a historical moment in the life of an expanding church as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem out. As it spreads out, it's spreading to both Jews and Gentiles. And as it's spreading out the message of Christ alone for salvation, there is confusion of... Is Jesus alone enough? Specifically by the Jewish folks who had understood all of their life that the mark of their identity as the people of God was circumcision. And so as the gospel went out, the, the Jewish folks who embraced Jesus, again, listen, who embraced Jesus weren't against Jesus, but they often believed it would have to be Jesus plus Circumcision. So, that debate comes back to Jerusalem to the apostles. And it's because the report had been that those who had come down from Judea had begun teaching brethren, in other words, those who had been born again, that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So, yes, believe in Jesus, but believe in Jesus and be circumcised. And so the debate is on. And the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem are trying to resolve how do we protect the true gospel as it goes out. As the debate goes on, Peter speaks up and he says in verse 11, but we believe, we, he's talking about himself as the apostles, Jewish folks who had been circumcised, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, the Gentiles, also are. So in other words, we have come to the conclusion that circumcision didn't save us, only Jesus saves us. So if we believe that only Jesus saves us and they believe that Jesus saves them, why are we saying they should be circumcised? That is adding on to the gospel. You tracking with me? So that's his input into this debate. Ultimately, the leader of the church there in Jerusalem, James, says this. And everybody, this is a, pre I'll tell you, the end of the story is everybody agrees and they sign off on what James says. Here's what he says. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Again, context, what's he mean by trouble them? Require them to be circumcised. If they have turned to God through faith in Jesus alone, let's not require them to be circumcised. Let's not trouble them. Make sense? You with me? 
Oh, yeah, they're protecting the purity of the gospel. But then it gets squirrely. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what strangled and from blood. What? What? The question was circumcision, and they said no. They took circumcision off the table and then put four other things on. That was like, we shouldn't have asked. We asked the elders one time, could we have an extra vacation day? And it came back, no, and by the way, the two that you have been taking, they're gone. Ah, we shouldn't have asked. <laughs> so which is it? It seems like they're protecting salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone when they take circumcision off the table, but then they put four extra things on the table. So confusing. Unless you understand freedom in Christ. Because James goes on to say, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What are they talking about? The law of Moses has been read for all of their lives. They've heard, here's what's pleasing to God. So you have, watch, very important now. If you've tuned out, tune back in. You have in this community, Gentile folks who have heard the gospel and have been, <laughs> have been changed from idol worshipers to the worship of the one true God. And you have Jewish folks who have repented of trying to obtain righteousness through the law and trusted in Jesus, but have spent their whole life understanding that this is how you please God. So the elders and the apostles make a very clear distinction, and I don't want you to miss it. They reinforce salvation is obtained how? By faith in Jesus alone. But freedom is expressed how? In loving consideration of those around you. So, should we trouble them with circumcision as necessary for salvation? No. Can you live, therefore, however you want? No. Faith alone, love always. That's Galatians 5. Faith alone, no additions. Love always. Christ has set you free and Christ alone can set you free. Freedom doesn't do whatever it wants. Freedom always loves. Love always, faith alone. You see it? You see, you could say it this way. These restrictions were not given by the elders and the apostles to earn salvation. That was, without exception, clearly understood as faith in Christ alone but to express love for others. That's how we gain freedom, Christ alone. And how do we express freedom? Love always. Don't pervert freedom and go back to adding on things to our salvation. Don't pervert freedom and act like it doesn't matter what anybody else 
things. You capturing it? Maybe I was just a dummy. But all that stuff got muddled up, and I didn't understand. I'm hoping you will, by God's grace, you'll see it with simplicity and clarity this morning. The gospel, what really defines us as Christ followers, faith in Jesus alone, no additions. Free to love always, not do what we want. That's freedom in Christ, protected from add-ons and from license, from legalism and license. Faith alone, love always. And so, Acts 15 and Galatians 5, protect us today. Can I ask you, are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? Repenting of changing your mind about any thought Well, Jesus plus my good works, Jesus plus me coming to church, Jesus plus me putting some money aside, Jesus plus I'm being a better person, I'm not cussing as much, Jesus plus stuff. Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Are you free? Are you loving? Or are you abusing the freedom that Christ has set you free from? to do what you want, and to ignore the thoughts and the consideration of others. It's not, and those questions come in the correct order. It's not do you love, and therefore you're free. It's are you free, (laughs) and do you love? Because Christ sets us free, and love fulfills our freedom. I want us to declare our closing prayer and song and invite Matt and Shirley to come up as they do. Jesus, with his disciples, said, this is how people are going to know you're my disciples. How? That you love one another. That you genuinely could care about the people around you. That Jesus is not abused in your life as a get out of jail free card. Jesus is not an excuse for you to do whatever you want or treat people however you want because, hey, I belong to God. Jesus has set you free to really love as you have been loved. Love your spouse as you've been loved. Love your kids as you've been loved. Love your neighbor as you've been loved. Freed to love freedom. Let's stand and declare this is our prayer.
free by Jesus alone. For by grace you've been saved by faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by your works so that you would never bust. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Free to love. I hope you'll go and be known at work, at home, by your love, because Christ has set you free. God bless.